right. Well, now as we come the time, we open up God's Word. I hope that you've been blessed by the worship we've had today and the remembering of Christ. Has that been the case here this morning? It's a wonderful time of just singing of the cross and remembering in communion. You know, we have all sorts of people that work really hard to make these happen. Our worship team, our video production guy, people who run the Friend the services, and uh, I'm blessed by them. I hope you're blessed by them. Let's thank them for all their work now. We don't do that enough sometimes. And it's good for us to give, give those folks acknowledgement, because they do work hard. And, and truthfully, we all like to receive acknowledgement at times, don't we? We all like to receive the congratulations on occasion, the, hey, great job, well done. We like to have our victories, our achievements in life celebrated, don't we? I mean, we all do. We like our acknowledgments and accomplishments to be seen and recognized by others. This seems to be a basic human need, and it's a need that uh, transcends all people, kind of all stages of life, no matter where you are, you appreciate this. I've, I see this with my children, for example. Um, like my, the first time my eldest daughter did a, very, a pretty good cartwheel. She was for a long time trying to figure out this cartwheel thing. And, you know, for, for a while, it was like she just kind of put her hands down on the ground and like did this little hop. And it was pathetic, really. But she kept working at it, and she eventually got it down, and then she did this awesome cartwheel once, and she just kind of stopped and stared and just looked at me just beaming as to say, Daddy, did you just see what I did? She was looking for acknowledgement. Or sometimes, in moments of surprising kindness, our children work hard to clean up their messes on their totally own initiative. They just kind of say, hey, we're going to surprise Mommy and Dad, and we're just going to clean up this big mess that we've made, totally on their own, without being told. Now... Before you think that we're brilliant examples of parenting, let me assure you this is a very rare occurrence, but it has happened. And when it does, our kids are like giddy with excitement, and they are then jumping up and down, can't wait to show mommy and daddy what they've done because they know they've done something good, something that is worthy of acknowledgement. Little kids like to be recognized, to be acknowledged. They, they crave that. And that need, it never really goes away. We see it all the time in people, particularly, for example, in uh, athletics. Do you know that there's a universal response that people have when they do something remarkable, particularly of a, of a physical nature? Here's some pictures. When people achieve something that is, that is noteworthy, they, they often celebrate it by raising their hands in the air. Every culture, every people group seems to have this universal response of yes. Why is that? Well, it seems to be some kind of instinctual celebration of victory. And it also is a way that we just kind of call attention to ourselves and say, look what I have done. We all have a basic human need for acknowledgement. And as we, we grow and mature, we typically don't seek this like a little child, like, ha look at me, look what I've done. Nor do we always go around in kind of the victorious Olympian stance with our arms raised. Sometimes we develop a little bit more subtle way of trying to get an acknowledgement. We kind of puff out our chest a little bit and kind of make that offhand comment or, <clears throat> well, guess what I did today kind of thing. Because we want people to know that we've done something good. Now, sometimes I get into trouble with this. See, I'm, I'm not the athletic type. I'm never going to dominate on the athletic field. I'm not tall. I'm not fast. I'm not particularly coordinated. But sometimes I feel I might just happen to have a little bit of a competitive advantage right here in my mind. Because I'm fairly decent, I think, at strategizing and thinking and outwitting. And so I really enjoy kind of strategic, competitive games, card games, chess, whatever, and I love to use my mind to utterly destroy people <laughs> who compete against me. And this has caused some tension in my household. 
I guess because sometimes I've gone about celebrating my wins in the wrong way. Like when I'm playing a game with my wife, I learned that when I win, I really shouldn't get in her face and say like, yeah, rocked you that time. How'd you like that win? That doesn't seem to go over very well, even though inside that's really what I want to do. Because I want my win to be acknowledged and to be celebrated. Is that just so wrong? Apparently it is. See, all, li- all people like to be acknowledged for their accomplishments and for who they are. And while there is sometimes an unhealthy spirit of pride that might creep into there, this is still a need that none of us can get away from. We all have it. And I wonder if it's because this desire is actually part of what it means to be made in the image of God. See, God loves to receive the acknowledgement that he is due. He yearns for it. He is jealous for it. He wants to be worshipped and glorified and make much of. He, he wants to be celebrated for who he is and what he has done. And this is the driving subject of the message today, that God, has a, uh, God is supremely devoted to bringing proper recognition to himself, and he will go to great and glorious lengths to make sure that this is done. He, he is supremely devoted to bringing proper recognition to himself, and he will go to great and glorious lengths to ensure that this is done. And I want to bring us today to a, a particular text that vividly presents this truth. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ezekiel. Now, you don't hear a lot of preaching from Ezekiel these days. In fact, I searched the archives. I think it's been at least a decade since Ezekiel was preached here at Bethel, but we're going to do so today. Get your Bibles open, turning particularly to the 36th chapter of Ezekiel. And I want you to see directly from God's Word what we're going to talk about. We're going to work very specifically through this passage, so, so get it open. And Ezekiel is one of the major prophets of Scripture, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. It is actually the fourth longest book in the Bible, uh, after the Psalms, Genesis, and uh, the Psalms, Jeremiah, and Genesis. And the structure of the book of, of, Jer- of uh, Ezekiel is very straightforward. It really contains two parts. The first part, the first two-thirds of the book, is, contains just a series of judgments and oracles against Judah and against Jerusalem. And then it launches into other oracles and judgments against the surrounding nations. And really, the, just the first 32 chapters of the book, it's all doom and gloom and judgment and wrath... But then the book takes a dramatic turn, starting in chapter 33. And here now, suddenly, Ezekiel begins to offer messages of hope and salvation. And the themes of deliverance and restoration and promise, it permeates chapters 33 through the end of chapter 48. And so the primary themes in Ezekiel, first, the themes of God's judgment, and then followed by promises of hope and restoration. Our passage today, Ezekiel 36, is one of the most central passages of this entire book. And it contains a wonderful uh, snapshot of the themes and the messages of Ezekiel. And it emphasizes clearly both God's judgment and his promised restoration. I, I would suggest if you understand this passage, you pretty much understand the thrust, the theme of the entire book. And so let's begin looking at chapter 36, starting in verse 16, where I'll read. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. What we see here 
These first verses is a collection of judgments from the Lord. In fact, God seems actually rather ticked off in this passage. So he's going to judge the Israelites. Israelite, the Israelites have been proven unfaithful. They've become wayward. Verse 17 says that they have defiled their land by their ways and deeds. The, the house of Israel lived in their own land, and they defiled it by their ways and deeds. This is a strong con- condemnation. Their waywardness includes both their ways, which is their patterns or customs of living, also their deeds, which are their particular actions. And so God's people, they've seriously lapsed in their faithfulness to God. And the Lord compares their lack of faithfulness to that of the uncleanliness of menstruation. He says in verse 17, their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Now, this is a jarring illustration. It's a bit awkward to talk about, but it's intended to convey the uncleanliness of the Israelites' lives. You see, in the Old Testament, whenever a person bled, either through menstruation or an injury, a cut, whatever, whenever there was blood, they were considered ceremonially unclean, and they needed to go through a purifying ritual in order to come before God in worship. And so with this illustration, God is saying that the Israelites, they are ceremonially unclean. They're covered in blood especially because of their violence. And so they defile themselves and their entire community, their land. They're ceremonial and clean. They're also guilty of idolatry. Verse 18, So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. See, they have erected idols in their lives, things that they've placed before God. And the text does not tell specifically what these idols are. We can assume they're probably false pagan gods like Baal, Asherah, etc. But probably other things like the worship of a pagan lifestyle, of sexual immorality, violence, rampant hedonism. The Israelites are worshiping and devoting their lives to wrong things. And this too has called the land, caused the land to be defiled. And God is not happy about this. He's ticked off about it. He says in verse 18 that he has poured out his wrath upon them. He says in verse 19 that he has scattered them among the nations and dispersed and judged them. So God has judged and scattered the Israelite people. And this scattering and this dispersing, it refers to the breaking up of the Israelite nation as the people are being carried off into captivity. You see, Ezekiel's writing after the fall of Jerusalem. In 586 AB, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, they were uh, sacked by Nebuchadnezzar and carried off into captivity in Babylon. And so as Ezekiel writes this, the nation of Israel, the nation of David and of Solomon and a host of other kings, it's no more. It's broken up. The people are scattered. A large number of them have been brought into captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel is actually among these captives. And so the scattering of the the Jewish people, the dissolution of of the Jewish state, this was an act of God's judgment. It's the very act God is referring to in verses 18 and 19 when he says that he's poured out his wrath and that he has scattered them. And so now the Israelite people are not one nation. They're scattered among the nations. They're all foreigners and sojourners. They no longer have a geographic identity. This is a dark age in Israel's history indeed. And this hardship has come upon them because they have forsaken the Lord and he has judged them. And you might think that this judgment would get their attention. That as they're scattered and driven out, they'd be like, man, we should get something right. But even in their scattering, we see that their waywardness continues. Verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations to which they came. God is saying, my people have been scattered and they have gone out to many different nations, but wherever they go, they profane my name. And this has God royally angry. 
And what does it mean that the Israelites have profaned the name of God wherever they went? Well, the Hebrew word for name, it refers essentially to the character or reputation of the person. It's, it, it's more than just the literal spoken name of that person, like my name is Brad. The word in Hebrew name means, it means much more than that. It is the essence of who someone is. So if I, if I come to you in the name of someone, I come to you in the name of the governor of our state, or I come to you in the name of the mayor of our city, I, I come to you on behalf of that person. I'm representing who that person is and their, their values, their principles, their reputation. Or, or, or if we say that we're Christians and we are serving our community in the name of Jesus Christ, what we're saying is that we're, we're doing this on behalf of Christ. As we do it, we, we are hoping, intending that our actions, they are reflective of the actions of Christ and the heart and the character and the priorities of Christ. And it also means that, that our actions are meant to honor Christ as we do things in his name. But the Israelites are not honoring the name of God. They are profaning the name of God, which literally means that they are polluting God's name. They're interjecting contaminants into his reputation. God's reputation should be clear and pure, just as wonderfully uh, clear as a bottle of pure mountain spring water. But the Israelites are muddying up that water. They're, They're polluting it. They're profaning it. Through their waywardness, through their idolatry, they are making God's name, which should be incredibly pure, incredibly desirable. They are making it into something that's distasteful and repugnant because they're distorting God's holy and right reputation. They go about saying, we follow Yahweh, but their lives are polluted with sin and with waywardness. And as such, the surrounding nations, they get a false impression of who who Yahweh is. They don't see him clearly. They don't think about him rightly. They probably see this God that the Israelites profess to worship. They see him as a judgmental God, an impotent God. They see him as a second-rate deity because his reputation has been profaned. And now you see why God is, frankly, ticked off. He says in verse 21, he says, I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations to which they came, he says. His renown has been impugned by the waywardness of his people. Wouldn't this anger you as well? I mean, how would you feel if somebody falsely misrepresented you, falsely falsely portrayed who you were, or by their life they demeaned the very essence of who you are? Imagine if you had, for example, a wayward child. Now, sadly, some of us here don't have to imagine that. That's a very real reality in your life, and, and God's grace to you, we understand that and our heart our heart breaks for you in that burden let's imagine for a moment that all of us were in that place and you had a child that in their waywardness did not at all display the values or the heart the concern the life that you raised them to display instead they embraced only the values of the world they lived for themselves they did not reflect the heart of christ and then when people discovered that this child was was that you were a parent of this child what might those people infer about you Might they be quick to infer some things about you that were not true? Or think about your perception of parents, of the young men who have recently committed terrible acts of violence in our nation. At Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, or at the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, you've heard about these atrocities committed by young men, and perhaps you've wondered about their parents. What might people think about you if one of your children went off and did something like this? What would a child going wayward like that do to your reputation or how people perceived you? Might they possibly, in some cases, acknowledge or think of you wrongly? Might they jump to the wrong conclusions about who you are or your parenting style because of how your child, what your child did? 
that would probably make some incorrect conclusions about your character. Probably. And if you put yourself in that position, then I think you get a window into God's heart here. He is saddened and angered by the fact that the Israelites have muddied up his reputation. And there's an important lesson in this for us. That God cares about his name. He is deeply concerned that proper recognition be given to himself. And we are his people. We are his representatives here on earth. And it is our responsibility to represent him well. Sadly, Christians often profane the name of God all the time. As we one day profess to be followers of Christ, of this good and holy God, the next day we go out and deny him with our lifestyle. When they use the harsh language of the world, when they idolize the things of the world and worship material possessions and comforts, when they treat the people of the world with rudeness, abrasiveness, or disrespect, like when they, however they speak to the telemarketer who calls at an inconvenient time, or how they relate to treat the checkout person and the waiter who has messed up their order. How are they representing Christ in that moment? Or when Christians engage in the immorality of the world and that they fill their minds and their lives with things that God detests, people see all of that. And they infer something about God as they watch your life. So how well are you representing Him? What is your life leading the people around you to conclude about, conclude about God and about Christ? Is there anything in your life where your actions might possibly be impugning God's reputation? Are you con- concerned about the conclusions that people make about, about God on the basis of your life? God's concerned about it. And he wants you to be a good and right representative of himself. Clearly, the Israelites are not doing that in this text. And the implication is that they need to repent and turn back to God and to get things right so that their life is aligned again with him. Perhaps some of us need to do some repenting today. The Israelites certainly needed to, and it seems likely that we all need to in some area as well. But looking further into this passage, we see that God is not willing to wait for their repentance. He intends to act decisively and immediately in order to vindicate the holiness of his name. God will act to vindicate his name. Look at verse 22. Therefore, save the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holy Holiness before their eyes. The Lord says he is about to act. He's had enough, and he is not going to wait for the Israelites to get their act in gear. And the purpose of his actions will be to vindicate his holy name. Twice he mentions this. It means that he's going to make his reputation right. And the emphasis, uh, he's emphatic about this. He says that the nations will know that I am the Lord. God has had it up to here. And he is bent on vindicating his holy name. And he intends to do it in a decisive way so that there is no doubt that he is the Lord. Now, you might expect that God would vindicate his name through dramatic displays of power. Like departing the Red Sea or sending fire from heaven. Or you might expect that God would vindicate his name through enacting more judgment upon these people who have so defamed his reputation. But God intends to vindicate his name in neither of these ways. And reading on, we see that the way in which he intends to vindicate his name, it is utterly surprising and glorious. Looking at verse 24. I will take you from the nations 
and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant so that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. There's no act of judgment coming. Instead, there's verse after verse of grace and blessing and deliverance that God intends to extend to his wayward people. And these blessings, they are glorious and dramatic. God is supremely devoted to bringing proper recognition to himself, and he will go to great and glorious lengths to ensure that this is done. And he will do this. He will vindicate his name by blessing and restoring his people. He lifts several different incredible categories of blessings of restoration that he will bring. First, he, he, he will bless his people socially as their community is rebuilt. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Here God is saying, you've been scattered. But now I'm going to bring you back together again. I'm going to restore your community. Which, which, by the way, was something I broke up myself as an act of judgment upon you. But I'm going to restore it to you. And this is incredibly surprising. God is essentially reversing his judgment. He first said, you're faithless. So go, leave, scatter. And now he's saying, you're still faithless. But come back to me. Clearly, God is not who the nations thought that he was. And second, he's going to bless them materially as their basic needs are provided. Look at verse 29. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. So not only is God saying, I'm going to bring you back to my place. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back and I'll bless you abundantly in this place. You're going to have everything you need. I'll provide grain from the fields. I'm going to provide fruit from the trees. I will provide for you. And in both cases, the text says this provision will be abundant. This is not just kind of some meager material blessing. This is a rich outpouring of grace and of restoration. And it comes with a promise. Never again will you suffer famine in the land. Like the nations. Incredible material restoration. And again, God is reversing his judgment. In his judgment, they were in need. They were sent out and destitute. And now he's saying they will never be in need. Clearly, God is not who the nations thought that he was. And later he emphasizes the extent of his material and social restoration, starting in verse 33 when he says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. I'm going to build up your cities. 
I'm going to cultivate your fields. I'm going to create a place of beauty and abundance for you like the Garden of Eden. I'm going to give you a home that is safe, that is fortified. And I'm going to bless you and cause you to multiply. Look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices. The flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to give you children. You're going to flourish in this place. You're going to experience great restoration socially as a community of faith and materially as I provide for your every physical need. This is grace. Clearly God is not who the nations thought that he was. A God of grace and incredible provision. A God who cares and restores even his most rebellious and wayward people. But it gets better. In addition to the social and material restoration, God makes some other wonderful promises, which are probably the most shocking. Not only is God going to restore them communally, as a community, as he restores them to one another. Not only is God going to restore them materially, as he restores them to the land. He is also going to restore them to himself. He is going to bless them spiritually by restoring them to himself. He's going to regenerate them from the inside. He's going to remake who they are at their core. He's going to restore them spiritually as the right standing with God is, is restored. This restoration involves a cleansing from their sin. Verse 25. I will speak, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Cleansing from sin. And it also involves then reorienting their heart back to God. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The imagery here is beautiful. It's one of total spiritual renewal. This is not just a temporary covering over of sin. God is going to change them from the inside out. He's going to take their heart, which is rocky and cold and in stalwart opposition to God. And he's going to remove that and give them a new heart that is warm and soft and that beats affectionately for their king. They're getting a complete heart transplant. And as such, they will once again walk in God's ways as his spirit comes to dwell within them. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The spirit comes into their life and they obey him. Do you understand how shocking this restoration is? Have the Israelites done anything to deserve this? Have they come back to God in repentance? Have they been broken by his judgment and cried out to him for help? No. They have done none of that. They are scattered. They are still entrenched in their opposition against God every day that profane the name of God. Yet God says, I'm going to restore you to myself. I'm going to change you from the inside. I'm going to give you an entirely new heart. A heart that loves me and is devoted to me. And this, by the way, will not be your work at all. This is going to be a work that I will do myself in you and through you. Ezekiel continues this illustration in the next chapter, in chapter 37. The most famous chapter of the book, the the Valley of Dry Bones. When he says that the Israelite nation is like a valley just filled with dry bones. Dead. Dried up. Worthless. Lifeness. But then, 
the Lord is going to come and reanimate those bones and give them life and restore them into a great people. Clearly, God is not who the nations thought that he was. A God of remarkable, undeserved grace who desires to change and transform and restore the most wayward sinner so that they then have a right and renewed relationship with him. How wonderful these blessings are. How undeserved. And Christians, this is good news. This is amazing news. This was incredible news for the Israelites in their day. But what we see God doing for the Israelites here, it's just a shadow of the greater, more incredible work that God will do for his people. Here in Ezekiel, God promises this work of restoration just for God's chosen people, the Israelite nation. But now, through Christ, he offers the same restorative work to anyone who would believe. So salvation in Jesus, it is essentially a spiritual restoration, which involves a radical transformation of the human heart. It involves changing a heart that is in cold opposition against God and making it soft and affectionate and obedient to him. So in Christ, we're cleansed from our impurity. In in Christ, we are set free from our bondage to sin and idolatry. In Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we receive a genuine love for God and a desire to serve Him. In Christ, we experience the tremendous blessings of being a part of God's people. And in Christ, we experience close, abiding fellowship with the Almighty God who made us. And today, our hearts ought to overflow with joy and gratitude for these incredible blessings. This transformative work, it ought to compel us to worship. Perhaps most of all, because we realize that this restorative work, it is something that is totally undeserved. If you're in Christ, he has restored you while you were yet his enemy. Your life before Christ was like the Israelites in the text. You profaned the name of God everywhere you went. And you failed to submit your life in reverence to him. But your disobedience did not deter God from showing you grace. And while you went about living your life, thumbing your nose at God, he found you and restored you and drew you to himself. And that, friends, is cause for tremendous worship of our king. It means that if you're a Christian right now, you ought to be filled with so much joy. It also means that you're a Christian now but have gone wayward. And you've lost your first love. Your faith has become dry. Restoration is here for you. God can renew your heart. And this text indicates that he's incredibly desirous to do so. Perhaps you need to repent from your ways and deeds and ask God to restore you into a right relationship with him. It also means that if you're not a Christian right now, if you've not experienced this radical heart transplant, if you've not had the Holy Spirit indwell you and change you from the inside out, be encouraged and convicted. God is still doing this transformative work today. He does it every day as people believe in Christ's restorative work on the cross and trust in him and him alone for their salvation. Perhaps today will be the day that God does this for you. Perhaps today needs to be the day when you draw a line and say, no longer, I will no longer profane the name of God. I will no longer be his wayward child. I will no longer continue in unbelief. I will turn to him and ask him to do this wonderful, spiritually regenerative work in my life. I hope today will be that day for you. Believe in Christ, and God will give you a new heart. And you will experience abundant spiritual blessings if you do. One of those blessings is a heart that delights to worship God, and we all should have that heart today. Right, Bethel? But notice the other verses, the other, the other blessings in this chapter. Verse 27. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit within us. Obedience. These are blessings that come from the transformed heart. Also, verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. This here, friends, is a picture of repentance. That we loathe and we regret our past failures. That when we remember our old self, we feel shame about how we used to live. And this too is a wonderful blessing of God's restoration as we turn completely from our old ways and we hate them and we orient our lives more fully towards Christ. So what are the blessings of the spiritual restoration? Repentance, obedience, the Holy Spirit, worship. But there is one more important, most important result. And this last one happens to be God's ultimate motive behind his work to restore his wayward people. Have you noticed the continual refrain? Verse 23. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Verse 36. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 38. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The restoration of God's wayward people results in God being seen rightly and acknowledged by the people of the world. At least it should. As God redeems and restores people to himself, one result is that The people around them see God more fully for who he is. As people then, God's people are obedient and surrender to him their lives, then they ought to manifest his his character, his values, his principles, and in that the person of God is seen through, through them. And also as the people of the world, as they see the incredible spiritual impact that a faith in God has upon a person, they say to themselves, God must be real after all. Look at the incredible blessings these people are receiving as they have spiritual faith in him. So another consequence of God restoring wayward people is that God would be seen rightly and acknowledged by the people of the world. And I submit to you that this, my friends, is the primary reason why God does any restorative work at all. You see, God is jealous for his holy and righteous reputation. Remember verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name. I will vindicate my name. The nations will know that I am the Lord. And so God often acts decisively so that there is no question that he is a God of power and of grace and of restoration. And this passage, this chapter emphatically declares God's primary motive behind his restoration. Verse 21, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Verse 32, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Let it be known to you. Don't forget it, Israel. Let me make this emphatically clear. It is not for your sake, Israel. It is not for your prosperity or your comfort that I am about to act. It is not for your happiness that I restore you. It is for my sake. It is for the sake of my holy name. It is for the the sake of my reputation among the nations. It is for my own sake that I do this. Says the Lord, God is saying this incredible restorative work that I am going to do, I'm doing it first and foremost for myself. I'm doing it ultimately for my glory and my fame. I'm doing it so that I'm rightly acknowledged among the nations and the people of the earth. I'm doing this not, not for my sake, not for your sake, for my sake. Because actually, Israel, you are so undeserving of this in the first place. This motive might seem a bit unfavorable to you. Perhaps because we tend to think that God blesses us first and foremost 
for our own benefit. That he helps us because he loves us. And that his love, therefore, it compels us to bless us. And it is certainly true that he loves us deeply, loves us amazingly. And that this love is a strong motivation behind God's blessings. But love is not God's only motivation. And in fact, I would argue that his love for people is not even his primary motivation. God blesses people because he wants to be glorified. He restores wayward people, not for their sake or because they're deserving of it, but for his own sake, for the sake of his name. Now, it's not popular to have a view like this today, given the common conception of God out there that that he is nothing more than a big fuzzball of love. So why can I make such a bold claim like this? I can make it because first on the grounds of this passage, which clearly states emphatically, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for myself. It is for the sake of my name that I do this. But also because we simply reason theologically that this must be so. You see, God must be devoted to the greatest thing, which is himself. I mean, we can all agree there's nothing greater than God, right? There's nothing greater than him. And since God is supremely great, all things should be done for him and for his sake. And so it is just and right, therefore, that we live for God. Because there's nothing greater to live for. And if it is just and right that we live for God and for his glory, then it is also just and right that God live for God and God's glory. He must, because God must be supremely devoted to the greatest thing, which is himself. I mean, suppose if if God ultimately desired to restore us because he wanted us to be happy. He just wanted us to be happy. And you look down the world and he sees the suffering of the world and his heart breaks and he says, oh, I, I feel so bad for those wayward people that have ticked me off. I just want them to be happy then God would be living for his happiness. But our happiness is not the greatest thing to live for. And God, because he's perfect, always lives for what is best. He always prioritizes what is most important. And therefore, God cannot live for anything more than himself. Because God is the ultimate priority in the universe. He is the most important thing. And if he prioritized our needs over himself, then he would be declaring that our needs are greater and more important than he is. He would be saying that the created thing is greater than the creator. And that, my friends, is idolatry. See, God is first and foremost devoted to himself. If if that's not true, then he would be guilty of idolatry. Idolatry is essentially placing something before God. And God God cannot place anything before himself. That would be unjust. He would essentially be saying this thing that I'm devoted to is greater than me. But God is not an idolater. And so he must be supremely devoted to his own glory and fame. He must, he must be devoted to his reputation, honor, renown, acknowledgement above all else. It is simply right for him to do so because he must be supremely devoted to the greatest, the most important thing, which is himself. And to say that God is ultimately motivated out of a love for people, that requires a massive overinflation of just how lovable we are. To say this would imply that we are, are so lovable that God just cannot help but love us. He cannot help but shower us with blessings because because we're just so worthy of it. But we're not worthy of his love. Apart from Christ, we're subject to God's judgment. Apart from Christ, we are wicked, rebellious people. Apart from Christ, we profane his name every day. And so he loves us not because he's compelled to or required to. He loves us because he chooses to. Because that's the kind of God he is. He does love us incredible ways. But he loves himself 
even more. It would be unjust for God to love otherwise. God must love the most lovable thing in the universe. And is there anything more lovable than God? Of course not. He's the most lovable thing. And so he loves himself the most. And that is why God can say, it is not for your sake that I restore you. It is not for your sake that I give you a new heart. It is not for your sake that I put my spirit within you and restore your community and give you great material provision. It is for my sake that I do these things because I love myself the most and I am supremely motivated by my desire for my glory. By the way, last time I checked, you and I are not more lovable than God. You and I are not more important than God. And so we cannot apply the same principle to ourselves. Can I say, well, God loves himself the most, so I should love myself the most. God makes himself most important, so I should make myself most important. That would be incredibly wicked. God can do that because he is the most lovable and the most important. We are not. We ought to love God the most, just as God loves God the most. God is supremely devoted to bringing proper recognition to himself. And he will go to great and glorious lengths to ensure that this is done. And he goes to incredible lengths throughout all of biblical history to establish for himself a people who will live for the glory of his name so that when God, when he he rescued Noah and his family from the flood, he did it not for Noah's sake, but for the sake of his name. And when God promised Abraham that he would make him the father of a great nation, he did it not not for Abraham's sake, but for the sake of his own glory. When God raised up Moses and brought the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, he did it not for their sake, but for, but so that the nations would know that he is the Lord. And when God brought the Israelites into the promised land and made the walls of Jericho fall, he did it not for their sake, but for the sake of his name and his glory. And when God raised up Samson and David and Solomon and a host of other kings to care and provide and lead God's people, he did it not for their sake, but for the sake of his name, for the sake of his own glory, when God sent prophets to warn and to guide God's people towards righteousness, he did it not for their sake, but so that his name would be made great. And when God scattered his people and sent them into captivity, he did it so that he could eventually restore them and thus glorify himself. And when God made the people then return to Jerusalem and rebuild The land, he did it not just for their joy. He did it so that they would once again declare to the surrounding nations that God is truly the supreme Lord. And when God sent his son, who walked among us, who taught us God's laws, who showed us God's heart, who suffered a horrible criminal's death, he did it to bring salvation to God's people. But even more so, he did it for the sake of God's glory. For on the eve that he was betrayed, Jesus himself said this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so the son died on a cross, and God was indeed glorified. And when God established his church, And brought together a new group of people under the banner of the gospel and the lordship of Christ. He did it for the sake of his glory. And when the Lord returns, he will come to make all things new. But not ultimately so that God's people will experience a life without suffering or hardship or tears or pain. He will do it because the new heavens and the new earth, it will be an incredible place of glory and splendor. And the entire creation will sing dramatic praises to the king. And God's name will be without question acknowledged as supreme and great and glorious beyond measure. And when God saves a wayward sinner, like me and like you, 
He does it. Not first and foremost for us, but for himself. So that we would live to the praise of his glorious grace. So that we would make much of him and his love. So that we would do all things for the glory and honor of our king. So that our lives would be a living testament to God's grace, which is undeserved. And that we would live out in full measure this text, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. God's people are here on earth to bring fame to his name. That is our created purpose. To live for God's glory. That ought to be our supreme concern in life. Is your life a living testimony to your created purpose? The people see around you see God rightly because of how you live? Do they find the God of the Bible to be attractive and relevant because they see how he has changed your life? Does your life make Jesus seem incredibly desirable to others? Or are there some ways in which your life profanes God's name? And people look at you and think, well, they're Christian faith. It's really no big deal. Or even worse, they watch your life and they say, if that's Christianity, then I want no part of it. How are you denying Christ with your lifestyle? See, here at Bethel, we often say it's all about him. What do we mean by that? We mean it's precisely what I've been saying this entire message. That we exist for him. That we are restored spiritually by him and for him. That our supreme concern in life must be God's glory. Because that is God's supreme concern. His glory. And we must live our lives in a way that reflects that. Amen? Amen. Let's just quiet our hearts now. Why don't you stand? I want to take another moment of just quietness. Dustin's going to play in the background. and Take a moment just to come before the Lord and think, what are some ways perhaps that my life is profaning his name? Some ways that my life is not rightly reflecting God's character and his glories. And confess that to him. Thank you.